Welcome to Series 2 of the Saltwater Strategists, the podcast that delves into the complex world of maritime security in the Indo-Pacific region. I'm your host, Jennifer Parker. As the world becomes increasingly dependent on maritime trade, it's critical that we understand the maritime security challenges and opportunities in the current geostrategic environment. Our well-respected guests, strategists, academics, international relations and maritime professionals from across the region provide insightful and considered discussion on the most pressing maritime issues in the Indo-Pacific. The Saltwater Strategist is a product of the Australian Naval Institute, a non-profit self-supporting organisation that encourages the promotion and advancement of knowledge related to the maritime profession. The Saltwater Strategist is also proudly brought to you by BAE Systems. Don't aspire to be a leader. Don't put a future tense on it. Be a leader today. What is important to you? Search out what's important to you and look for opportunities to lead there and step into that space with something to offer. But really importantly, be willing to fail, but be ready to learn. In today's episode, we have the honour of hosting a very special guest, Commodore Peter Scott Retired. Peter joined the Royal Australian Navy as a 17-year-old and rose over three decades to be the professional head of the Navy's submarine arm. He served in 10 submarines, passed the most demanding submarine command course in the world, and served as the head of profession of the submarine arm of the Royal Australian Navy. Throughout his 34-year naval career, Peter faced numerous challenges, successes, and failures as a leader, including catastrophic onboard disasters whilst dived and life-threatening traumas. He also endured personal battles with self-doubt, addiction, depression, and anxiety. Today, Peter works as an executive coach, helping to unleash the courage, compassion, and wisdom of today's leaders. He recently published his book, Running Deep, An Australian Submarine Life, which depicts his experiences and lessons learned during his time in the Navy. In this episode, we'll dive into the subject of naval leadership with Peter, exploring his remarkable career and the skills, attitudes, and values that enable effective leadership in challenging environments. Peter, thank you for joining us here today on the Saltwater Strategists. Uh, not at all, Jen. Thanks for the invitation to uh, come and have a chat. Peter, you've had an extensive career in the Royal Australian Navy. Can you describe your experience as the head of profession of the submarine arm of the Royal Australian Navy? Yes, yeah, certainly, Jen. So uh, from mid-2013 to the back of 2016, I actually had two hats. One was Director General Submarines, which was really that functional role as capability sponsor. Uh, And the other was uh, Head of Submarine Profession, which was a role established out of the Coles Review into the collapse of submarine capability a couple of years earlier. Going into those roles, uh, the first thing I experienced was a lot of trepidation. As I said, the the capability had literally collapsed to the point where we had no operational seagoing submarines. By the time I joined, uh, we had re-established our contract with industry, but we were yet to make any real ground with regards to submarine availability or reliability. So it was quite a tenuous situation. And the uniformed submarine workforce was just totally under strength and, and in a downward spiral. So I went in there pretty wary, and I was certainly tested along the way, uh, keeping the submarine enterprise on track, particularly when we suffered a you know a few setbacks. Uh, in 2014, Walla had a fire, big engine room fire. She was just coming out of a major refit, 
and we'd expected that she would be one third of our seagoing capacity for the next couple of years. But in actual fact, she was she was down for the count for those years. So that was a pretty difficult time. But I was also quite privileged to be in that role. Uh, my tenure coincided with the centenary of Australian submarines in 2014. Uh, that gave me the opportunity to represent the arm in Rabaul, uh, Papua New Guinea, uh, at the commemoration of the loss of A1 uh, back in 1914. It meant I was in Gallipoli to commemorate the centenary of the loss of A2 in 2015. And they were both humbling and gratifying experiences. Certainly experienced success along the way. During that time, the submarine escape and rescue ships, Percent and Stoker, uh, which were, of course, named to honour uh, the CEOs and the ship's companies of A1 and A2, we brought those into service. We developed and executed a submarine workforce growth strategy, which actually achieved a 40% growth of the arm over three and a half years, which is quite remarkable when you consider the, the very deep lines of specialisation within the arm. And that really set us on a trajectory for growth and expansion to become the force that would be required for a, a multi-class submarine fleet into the future. And fundamentally, when, when I departed the fix, uh, with more seaworthy and battleworthy submarines, uh, a stronger and more confident arm, we were definitely achieving much greater at-sea presence and meeting our operational commitments and delivering what we were there to deliver, which was an increasingly credible strategic deterrent effect. So that, in sum, was really a really satisfying experience. Thanks, Peter. That sounds like an incredibly rewarding role. This certainly also had its challenges. Looking at your career history, speaking of rewarding roles with challenges, I want to talk about some of your time in command of submarines. You previously described submarine command as leadership with ultimate authority and accountability. What do you think makes naval leadership unique compared to other types of leadership? I guess the most obvious difference between leadership in any military organisation compared with leadership in a civilian domain uh, centres on that lawful use of lethal force and all that that entails. I think context is the next uh, most defining factor and really it's critical that a naval leader understands the context of his or her command, understands the circumstances surrounding their ship or submarine and, and your people, can comprehend the defence and the political context and the economic and geostrategic context because they, they will all somehow, some way affect your command. The ATSI environment is logically what shapes naval leadership most distinctively. The ATSI or the undersea environment and everything that that entails you know, just being out there amongst the power of the sea, the distances that we traverse, the time, the weeks and months that we spend out at sea on exercises or operations. And I think posture is probably the next piece. Uh, you know, warships generally operate with a, a very overt posture. Uh, you know, here I am, I'm a warship, look out. And this kind of shapes the nature of the command and leadership. Submarines conversely operate uh, with a very different posture typically. And, you know, it's a posture that's driven by the need to preserve stealth, uh, which is undoubtedly their greatest tactical advantage. And that preservation of stealth also shapes the way that we live and train and, and operate. 
And many warships operate a long way from home, but we also operate away from supporting forces. And we're often denied the opportunity to seek guidance or, or direction as circumstances change. So the crews and the command need to be entirely capable of dealing with, with whatever situation confronts them. They just have to be wholly self-reliant once they get out there and amongst it. And that really brings forward the importance of judicious leadership and really effective teamwork on board. Thanks, Peter. I really appreciate you highlighting some of the, the unique aspects required of, of naval leadership. And given your over 40-year career, I bet you've had a few challenges. I'd like if you can uh, share with us potentially a, a challenging moment from your career and how you've overcome it as a leader. Plenty to choose from there, Jen. One that comes to mind was a, a time when I was at Sea and Collins. We were at the back end of a a pretty long series of tests and trials to prove the submarine after a, a, a big, long docking and to get the boat back to operations. We were dived and we suffered an, an inadvertent halon actuation, which filled the front half of the submarine with halon, which, as you would appreciate, Jen, puts out fires but doesn't support life. So we spent the next several hours at emergency stations running the diesels for toxic gas clearance to get our atmosphere back in spec. Now, the context to that one was that in the seven weeks prior, so the seven weeks since we'd undocked, none of the crew had had more than 24 hours off. Uh, we'd spent most of that time at sea and most of that time dived. And in that time, we'd logged over 70 urgent defects. Now, a lot of these were rectified as we went along by the crew at sea, but that was a really massive number of um, defects on the boat to deal with. Just in the past three weeks alone, we'd had 20 safeguard incidents, so real life-threatening emergencies at sea. Along the way, we'd made some huge inroads in preparing the people on the submarine for operations, but the very torrid nature of that whole period was really taxing people, and it certainly exceeded the experience of, of those on board. In more recent days, so just a couple of days earlier, I'd received a personal letter from one of the most respected senior sailors on board. And in it, he had calmly and respectfully spelt out to me what he thought were the risks of continuing to operate the submarine. And that included the risk that the ship's company might lose confidence in my ability to safely command them. Now, I read that as meaning that some of them were already there. So th there's the context. When we had that halon actuation, I was pretty close to the end of my tether, <laughs> and so were they. I released the aircraft that had joined us for the, the last set of trials, put the submarine on the roof, shaped course for Adelaide, and uh, signalled my intentions. Uh, the trials would just have to wait. And the relief in the crew uh, at that time when we hit the roof was palpable and, and really immediate. Uh, the response from Squadron was also immediate, uh, and they they reminded me of the strategic importance of the outstanding trials, and they suggested that my signals might have been drafted in haste. I was fuming because, you know, those signals have been drafted in Okaba. <laughs> I just ordered passage routine, pressed on towards port, and went back to my cabin to quietly boil, but also to think. And... What I thought on was, in fact, the wider context. For a very long time, 
I'd had visibility of our upcoming operations and we had a bold, dramatic deployment ahead of us. And I knew that I would need to command these people through the next year, through that deployment and beyond. And I knew that we would face, you know, immense challenges in waters and situations that, you know, many of them just probably couldn't yet envisage. And I wondered if there might not be an opportunity in front of me. So 30 minutes later, I called the command team together in the wardroom and I told them that I intended to return to allocated dived water, resume the conduct of the trials, and they were to brief me in an hour on what was required to achieve this. That got a pretty mixed response. But an hour later, uh, we reconvened, the XO let off, uh, he was backing me, uh, but I reckon he was probably in two minds as to whether or not I would actually take them out again. I was genuinely fearful at that time that I might be about to precipitate a mutiny, but I spoke to the importance of the program. I spoke to my confidence in their ability to safely execute it, and I ordered the Watch to reverse course and make preps to dive. So... It, it was a challenging situation. I think the way I overcame it was by giving both myself and the ship's company just that little bit of time and space to step back from the situation, consider the input, consider the context, build up some options and, you know, take a deep breath and get set again. And what helped me do that was my willingness to trust the ship's company, but also my willingness to risk my command for the sake of the command. Now, in the end, uh, the, the after control services came over, we reversed course, off we went, and I was, <laughs> I was very relieved when that happened, but I was also very much humbled by uh, the ongoing commitment and also the resilience of that little tribe of people that were gathered in the boat on that day. That's an incredibly interesting story uh, and certainly a challenging uh, leadership experience, trying to balance the strategic requirements of not only the Navy, but the country against trying to, to motivate your crew and, and uh, highlight that sense of uh, purpose of what you needed to achieve. Oh, reflecting now, how, how did it feel as a leader to know that you had this significant thing that you needed to achieve, but you knew you know, from the letter of one of your, your well-respected chiefs that there were some who were questioning whether that was feasible. Felt pretty awful. <laughs> uh, one or two points. Um, Perisher, which is obviously the course that we do to qualify ourselves for submarine command, is a tremendous learning experience. Like there's just opportunity to learn all the way through. But there's also a lot of opportunity to, to fail. And, and failing can be pretty brutal. You know, if you're off the course, you're off the course. You don't go to command an Australian submarine. One of the features of Perisher, certainly as I did it, was that there was very little feedback on the way through. If you woke up each morning and you were still there, you were doing okay. But it was up to you to decide how well you were performing, how well you were leading, how fatigued you were, and so on. And fundamentally, that's because, you know, when you're at sea in command of a submarine, there's lots of tech out there, but there's no barometer that says, how am I doing today? There's nothing out there that gives you that direct feedback. You've got to be sensitive to it, looking for it, and making your own judgment about how you're going, how valid the decisions you are, how well are making, and how well you're leading the team. So Perisher is great for really lifting you to that point 
where you are, you know, you're the arbiter of your own performance. Now, in that circumstance, we'd been on board as a crew for a long time, uh, just hadn't done a lot of sea time. I knew that I had a, a strong reputation and was very well respected on board. And I knew that I had complete authority out there, but I also knew that command authority doesn't last very long in a submarine without command credibility. So I knew there was a lot at risk and I knew it could all come crashing down pretty quickly. And there are probably two ways I could have, you know, taken that. One was to back off entirely, give the guys and girls plenty of room and plenty of space. And the other one was actually to ratchet it up a little bit and kind of see how we went. And that's, that's how I decided to go. Seemed to work out okay. <laughs> Just focusing again uh, on another submarine that you commanded, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, harrowing incident that occurred when you were in command of HMAS Deshano. Uh, I know that you've got a book out on the way, uh, Running Deep in Australian Submarine Life, that talks extensively to this incident. Can you walk us through the moment when the flood occurred on HMAS Deshano? What was going through your mind and how did you initially respond to the situation? My initial response was actually to have a bit of a chuckle, uh, and I'll, I'll explain why that was. At the time of the flood, I was standing underneath the upper accommodation space hatch, so up forward. I was with the Chief Tiff and the DWO, so the senior sailor responsible for hull and machinery and watertight integrity, and the senior sailor responsible for electrical and weapons. And these guys had a very healthy sense of competition. Uh, they would give each other all sorts of grief if one department had more defects than the other. And every time we'd been out over the last three months or so and gone deep, this hatch had been leaking. So we were there underneath the hatch at deep diving depth to see how the Chief Tiff's latest repair attempt had gone. And uh, it was bone dry. It was perfect. So uh, they were back at level pegging, at nil all, no major defects across the entire submarine. And I was congratulating these guys on the state of the boat and the state of the hatch at that time. And the very next thing we heard was, you know, flood, 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 flood in the lower motor room. So pretty clearly the guy responsible for watertight integrity has got at least one new problem when you hear that pipe. So we took just the the barest of moments to share a grin uh, and just enjoy the irony of that before, you know, bolting off to our our uh, respective emergency stations. So that had me within in the control room, literally within a couple of seconds. During the initial reactions to the flood, I effectively did nothing. It, my XO had the weight as duty commanding officer that day, so you know it was his boat and. When I arrived in the control room and for the next you know, short period of time, uh, the team were doing precisely the right things and they were doing them very well. Now, internally, you know, I was literally checking every single order and every single action. Uh, my mind was racing to understand what was going on in the present and to try and place myself in the future and shape the future. Internally as well, I was fighting to hold on to my fear uh, so that I could demonstrate calm and offer courage to the ship's company and, you know, demonstrate confidence in their skill and training and, and confidence in the submarine. 
But there certainly came a point in time when we had completed all the AOPs. So all the emergency operating procedures were done. We had a bow up. Uh, we're propelling at full speed. We've blown emergency ballast and we're pumping on anything that can draw a suction, but pretty much nothing was happening. And in fact, we're now beneath deep diving depth and slowly sinking. So that's when I took the submarine. Thanks for walking us through that, Peter. Obviously, uh, an incredibly challenging experience, both as a, uh, a leader and a crew member being on a submarine whilst flooding. Can you talk us through how the crew came together to work towards the common goal of, of trying to get that submarine to surface and stay afloat? And were there any specific actions or decisions made that were crucial to the success of the recovery efforts? Sure. So uh, they did what they were trained to do. <laughs> um, they executed the EAPs. They followed their training in that damage control battle that followed to keep the boat on the roof and get her alongside. They followed their, their training. Now, you know, the difference with a scenario like that is no matter how imaginative your commander C training might be, they can just never dream up the combination of problems that you might actually uh, face when you, when you hit a really big hurdle like this. That DC battle, damage control battle, went on for about six hours, and it was another couple of hours on top of that before we actually got alongside. And certainly staying on the roof and getting alongside, it took every level of redundancy that the submarine could offer that was designed into the boat. Uh, it took every ounce of energy we had, every shred of intellect, and definitely every strand of teamwork that we could muster. Our objectives, pretty simple, get rid of the seawater, identify defective equipment, restore systems and capability, but, big but, <laughs> all without causing further damage or, or killing someone. So it was all about uh, doing the right things in the right order so that we could achieve a safe and known state and clearly took a lot of discipline and, and all our knowledge, skill and experience. I, I would say that every decision and every action was crucial in some way. Not every decision was perfect, but I'd also say that we won that battle in the preceding months. Like it had to be fought on the day, but we won that battle in our training in the school, in the simulators, individual training, team training, that whole system of fast cruises, you know, safety days, that steady progression of moving your submarine from alongside to at sea, moving from surface to dived, moving from shallow to deep, and making sure that you genuinely met the standards you needed before you progressed to any of those different levels. I think before the flood, my ship's company probably thought I was a bit of a bastard when it came to damage control training. There were certainly no complaints after the flood. There weren't any complaints beforehand either, but you know what I mean. Everybody loves damage control. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Given those high-pressure situations you've been in as a leader, what would you say are some of the most important qualities for a leader in situations like this? I would say that commitment, courage, and compassion are up there for the most important qualities for naval command, full stop, regardless of the situation. Certainly on commitment, you simply can't expect anybody to care more passionately or, or more deeply about your submarine and your people than you yourself do. You know, in that circumstance, you can't expect anyone on board to care more about their survival than you do. You've got to obviously acknowledge that 
you can't do everything. Your submarine can't be everything. But day by day, you've just got to be evidently and unequivocally and visibly committed to your duty. Uh, Courage. So I think of courage as being enabled by insight and acceptance of self. And certainly there are times when as a CEO, you need to exhibit courage. But I think more importantly, as a CEO, you need to be acutely aware of courageous acts and behavior, whether they're physical or moral, uh, whether they're conspicuous or inconspicuous. You have to have an eye for the courage of your people. It's a, an expendable resource and courage can be really rapidly depleted, yet building back up stores of courage can take days or weeks or months or sometimes years. And finding yourself or others without a reserve of courage can obviously put you in a pretty dangerous place at times. And the third uh, is compassion. And again, I think of compassion as being enabled by insight and acceptance of others rather than insight and acceptance of self. And I, I most often find myself placing courage and compassion together because, you know, in my view, naval leadership demands a full measure of both. And because I've, I've learned that it very often takes courage to be compassionate and it very often takes compassion to be courageous. Thanks, Peter. On the compassion side, it's not lost on me that whilst operating a submarine, you're balancing the requirement to have a operational capability as strategic deterrent for your country, but also the safety of your crew, which are operating in a really unique environment. How do you balance as a leader the safety of your crew with achieving the mission objectives of a submarine, which is such a key strategic deterrent? So you might be aware, Jen, of those three sort of guiding principles that we use in the arm, being uh, safety of the submarine, avoid counter-detection and achieve the aim. And obviously that safety of the submarine piece refers not just to the safety of the platform, but also the, the safety and the well-being of the, the people on board. Those three rules are, or principles are day one stuff when you join the arm and they're known throughout the arm, they're known throughout every boat and they're practiced. It's, it's one of those structures that we lay over our thinking and, and what we're going to do and, and how we go about it. And at first blush, and for a long time I thought this was the case, they look like they're hierarchical or sequential. You know, the first thing you have to do is keep the submarine safe and then if you do that, that'll help you to and allow you to avoid being detected. And if you do that, then that'll allow you to go on and achieve the aim. And that's not a bad way of thinking about it at certain times. So certainly during workups, it's a good sequential way to, to think about things, you know, walk before you try to run sort of attitude. But certainly when you get out on operations, it becomes pretty apparent that there's no hierarchy there. All three are equally important and equally foundational, and no one of those principles matters at all without the others. So, you know, to give you an example, if, if your mission is to go out and conduct a, an ISR patrol, the way that you will keep safe, keep your platform and keep your people safe, is by conducting the mission well, and hence not getting counter-detected and, and hence not getting clobbered. So all three really play into each other very much in that sort of situation. But it's a great set of principles to give us a common language and to give us a common framework for 
uh, thinking about and talking about how we're going to balance safety, well-being and achievement. Peter, as we mentioned before, you've had an extensive career in the Royal Australian Navy and you've seen a whole suite of different platforms come through. You've served in O-boats, you've served overseas in U-boats and you've served in the Collins class. Do you believe the leadership styles differ depending on the platform being operated and the technology in use? And if so, have you observed any changes in the leadership approach between these submarines? Do you think that this is relevant as Australia transitions to its nuclear submarine capability? Certainly the command environment on uh, on different submarines that I've served in over time has shifted and I've seen a few different approaches to leadership and command. I think a... Uh, an aspect of serving on the O-boats was, in any relative sense, the technology was quite transparent. It was possible to know pretty much every aspect of the platform intimately. I got introduced to a much more modern class of submarine with the upholders when I uh, served on exchange with the Royal Navy. And there, you know, the tech was more advanced and less readily observable, less readily comprehended, and the sailors were definitely more deeply specialised. So I think I learned at that time to be more reliant on, you know, applying good submarine practice and principles rather than trying to compete with the sailors for knowledge of systems, which might have been a bit of an attitude previously. Certainly when I joined Collins in command, I had next to no experience at sea in that class of submarine. I had maybe five or six days at sea. So in one sense, I was quite out of my comfort zone. But it was a good thing. It forced me to rely on the expertise and the advice of my people to a much greater extent. And it meant that I had to really finely gauge the trust that I'd invest in my people. And I had to really tune up my risk senses. But it it meant that we had a, a command environment on board where you know people were expected to know their stuff, of course. But there was also plenty of room for uh, people to realise and demonstrate their, their potential because it, it wasn't being crowded out by the, by the CIO. Now, as we shift to a new type, you know, they were all um, SSKs and, and, you know, the boats that I did perish on and um, served in the Canadian Navy with all SSKs. As we move to a new type with a nuclear attack submarine down the line, this is definitely going to require a shift in approach to command and leadership, but I want to sort of moderate that comment a little bit. So first up, most command responsibilities, I expect, will be very similar, if not the same. The CEO is responsible for his people, her people, responsible for the platform, responsible for the, the lawful application of lethal force. And, you know, you might say that the captain is responsible for optimising the positive potential and mitigating the negative potential that's contained within your submarine, regardless of what class or type it is. Now, the striking difference with an SSN is the enormity of potential, both positive and negative, that's associated with a nuclear-powered propulsion system. And where this is going to impact is this is going to bring a degree of scrutiny and oversight into all aspects of submarine design, build, sustainment, and submarine operation, uh, which is beyond anything we've previously experienced. And I've got no doubt that this level of scrutiny and oversight is the thing that's most likely to impact the way in which our CEOs lead. I think 
notwithstanding the uh, the magnitude of that shift, you know, some really simple principles will continue to apply. You go out there, you need to know yourself, you need to know your submarine, including the platform and sensors, the weapons, all their capabilities, all their limitations, and you need to know your environment and your adversary. And if you can do that, you're on the front foot. Uh, as I mentioned uh, previously, uh, we're excited to see that you have a new book on the way uh, entitled Running Deep, An Australian Submarine Life, talking about your 40 years of service. Would you mind talking about why you've decided to write it and what some of the key takeaways from the book are? So it doesn't quite cover 40 years because I popped out of full-time service back in 2017. I've racked up a few years reserve service, but um, I drew a line at that departure from full-time service in writing what's effectively a memoir. Uh, the book covers the full length of my career up to that time from young seaman officer and submariner through a bunch of years in command of submarines and, and in other uh, spaces and, of course, onto some more strategic level roles. The experiences are definitely my own, but I can see that they also illustrate some of the struggles, the failures and the triumphs of the submarine arm over those sort of 30, 35 years. There are definitely some lessons on survival, uh, resilience, leadership for anyone who's looking for those. But importantly, I think the stories capture something of the mystery, the thrill, the occasional terror, some of which you've heard about today, but also, and probably most importantly, the enduring satisfaction of living and working with submarines and living and working with those people who take them to sea. Just personally, you know, as submarine careers go, there is literally nothing extraordinary about mine. Most of my mates have spent years or decades in submarines, just like I have, and some have achieved far more than I have. But what I know is that for most Australians, it's an exotic and a largely unknowable way of life. And I also know that submarines are an increasingly important part of our national defence and security at a pretty difficult time in any sort of geostrategic sense. So look, I was inspired to write Running Deep to offer people insight into what is a genuinely rare way of life and to offer a greater appreciation of the tremendous value of our submarines, um, be that as a deterrent or as an offensive capability. Uh, I also hope that I can, in some small measure, inspire further generations of Australian submarines. Thanks, Peter. That's been a, an excellent discussion talking about your experience as the head of the submarine profession, uh, some of your anecdotes from command, and some of those key tenets that you think are important to naval leadership, particularly in high-stress environments. Talking about that future generation that you just mentioned there, what advice would you give someone who aspires to be a leader in the military in high-stress environments, given the experiences that you've been through? I typically hesitate to offer advice, <laughs> but I'll answer the question. Uh, the advice I would offer would be, you know, don't aspire to be a leader. Don't put a future tense on it. Be a leader today. What is important to you? Search out what's important to you and look for opportunities to lead there and step into that space with something to offer. But really importantly, be willing to fail, but be ready to learn. Peter, I want to extend a huge thank you for joining us and sharing your incredible insights and experiences as a naval leader. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and to hear your stories of resilience, courage and leadership 
in the face of some of the most challenging situations imaginable. Peter's book, Running Deep, An Australian Submarine Life, is a must-read for anyone interested in the fascinating world of submarine service and naval leadership. Thank you, Peter, for joining us today. Thanks, Jen. It's been a pleasure. Our guest today was Commodore Peter Scott, retired. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, reviewing and following Saltwater Strategists wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more on the Australian Naval Institute website, navalinstitute.com.au. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or sign up to our weekly newsletter via our website. If you're interested in general maritime affairs, why not consider joining the Australian Naval Institute to get special access to timely content and events relating to maritime affairs. A big thank you to our podcast sponsor, BAE Systems, whose support is vital to bringing you these timely and important discussions on maritime security. I'm Jen Parker. Thanks for listening.